Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. In the show Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye is listening to two different people argue two different positions, and he is in the middle. A young man arrives into town with a newspaper and says they need to be concerned with what's going on in the outside world. One of the villagers responds, why should I break my head over what's going on in the outside world? Tevye says, he's right. And the young man responds, you can't close your eyes to the outside world. And Tevye admits, he's right. Another another villager pipes up, but he's right. And he's right. How can they both be right? You know, Tevye says, you are also right. Today, we're going to talk about tensions, dun, 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 in theology, in the Bible, in lived experience, there are often two things which oppose each other, and yet, they are both true. And often, there is a mediator, like Tevya, who brings them together, who holds one in the one hand, and the other in the other hand. Perhaps... They never fully resolve, but they are held together by the mediator. So what do I mean by tensions? Dun, dun, dun. Well, in Judaism, we say Avinu Malkeinu, our father and our king. We relate to God in some ways as a father, right? He is our rabbi. He is our teacher. He is a loving, patient parent. The Lord is our shepherd who protects us, who pulls us out of a ditch when we fall in, because sometimes we're like sheep and we're not so bright all the time, right? And we are his children, uh, his students, his sheep. On the other hand, God is also our king. He's our ruler. He is Lord of Lords. He is, he has absolute authority. Amen? Yeah, he is our master and we are his servants. In a similar way, we relate to God through these two tensions. Dun, dun, dun. Right? This is how we relate to God. We relate to God through love and awe, or sometimes translated love and fear. We love God and we revere God. We respect God. He is our father and our king. There's tensions there. They don't, oh, dun, dun, dun. They don't always resolve, okay? And this is also related to one of the main tent, one of the main opposing truths in this week's Parsha. You almost got me to say it again, but you, you know, I didn't. Okay, you got to pay attention. On the one hand, in this week's Parsha, God is holy. What does that mean? He is full of glory and brightness. 
more even than the sun in our solar system, right? Because he is creator and the sun is the creation. So he has to have more glory than the sun. Amen. And yet, God is also near to us. He's close to us. He dwells with us. How can they both be right? You know, you are also right. Right? They're both true. God is our father and our king. He is full of glory like the sun and closer than a good friend. We are his slaves and we are his children. At the center of our liturgical worship, what do we say? We say the Kedusha. This is from Isaiah 6, chapter, uh, uh, verse 3, which is uh, in the middle of Isaiah's vision of worship in heaven. And the, the heavenly creatures are saying something, and we, in our worship, say something along with them. What do we say? Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of angel armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. Think about that. These are two poles stretching against one another in one sentence, in one worshipful phrase. God is holy, beyond holy, beyond holy, utterly powerful and brilliant and unique and separate. And yet, the whole earth is filled with his brightness and his presence, his nearness and intimacy. The climax of Jewish worship says that God is glorious beyond description and yet also at the same time present with us, filling the earth and our sanctuary with his goodness. These poles of truths that oppose one another are all over the scriptures. Did God give Shabbat to Israel or to the nations? Yes. Looked at one way, God gave a day of rest to the Jewish people, to Israel, specifically in the Torah, for us to be a unique people. But in Isaiah 66, it says that from one Shabbat to another, all flesh will come and worship God, which implies that Shabbat has a universal application, especially in the Messianic age. Does God love Israel or does he love all people? Yes. <laughs> Did God choose the children of Jacob in love to be a royal priesthood, to be a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Or did he broaden that choice to those who follow Messiah? Yes. In this week's Parsha, we read it. Clarine read this, right? Do we remember this? Isaiah, uh, sorry, Exodus 19, verse 6. Uh, God first describes this mediating priestly role for, the, for Israel, for the Jewish people, right? But it doesn't resolve with the other tension because this is also expressed in 1 Peter and it repeats the same calling, but now it's Jew and Gentile in Messiah, right? So if we're out of balance, that's no good. If I stand here on the bima and I talk all the time about the distinctiveness and the holiness of the Jewish people, then I'm elevating Jewish identity and that could lead to pride. 
But if I only talk about God's universal love for all people, and I never mention the distinctive calling of Israel, then I'm contributing to erasing the Jewish people. And I'm contributing to replacement theology, which says that the church has replaced the Jewish people as God's chosen. And that's no good either. So what enables these tensions? Dun, dun, dun. Yes, Eric's with me. Are not only a mediator, but also semi-permeable boundaries. Bada-bing! Hey, we're excited about semi-permeable boundaries, aren't we? Yes, yes. What do I mean? Well, think of a cell wall or a cell membrane. If you didn't have that boundary, you wouldn't have life. You know, there was a weird series of uh, cartoon shorts when I was a kid called Inside Out Boy. It was in the 90s on Nickelodeon, so there you go. But anyway, he was a regular boy for a while, and one day he was swinging on a swing and he went over the bar and he became Inside Out Boy, bada big, uh, right? And this cartoon superhero, I felt, and I still feel, is not very realistic. Because everyone knows that if you don't have your skin as a membrane, all your organs would be exposed to the elements of nature and you wouldn't survive. Not a realistic cartoon. I'm sorry, Nickelodeon, you missed this one, okay? But all boundaries like cell walls or your skin do let some things in and they do let some things out, right? For example, when you're exercising, right? Or if it's hot out, uh, what happens? There's moisture that exits your body through the skin and the water evaporates, evaporates and it cools you off, right? Bada bing! Hey, semi-permeable boundaries. Are you following with me? Okay. When I was a public school teacher, I really had to learn about boundaries. I started off as a new teacher uh, with kind of a poor sense of them. You know, I was, uh, I was quite goofy and uh, I would let, uh, in some ways, too much of my personality be a part of my teaching persona, right? Uh, but kids need boundaries in order to feel safe and in order to grow. But on the, other, on the other hand, being too harsh and too disciplinarian, that can be hurtful as well, right? No student is going to learn much from a teacher who doesn't show compassion and care, right? And for that, you have to let some of your personality shine through. You have to have boundaries, but it has to be semi-permeable. Some of the, of, of the real you has to be there in order to be genuine, in order for them to know you care about them, in order that they can learn, okay? So there's a balance between being genuine and being uh, an authority in the classroom. And every teacher and parent has to find the balance between these two tensions. Thank you. Thank you, Eric and, and Lloyd. Right? How do we do that? How do we find that balance? By applying semi-permeable boundaries. Boundaries are all over the creation story. Each identity is created by dividing between two things that are now distinct. Before there was waste and wild, there was chaos, and then God creates identities. The land and the sea, they have borders. They have boundaries. The evening and the morning, there's a division. The six days and the seventh day, there's a distinction. Speaking of the mediating power of wisdom in the creation story, this is how Proverbs 8 uh, looks back on, on creation. This, I thought this was interesting. 
When he set the heavens in place, I was there. This is wisdom. When he inscribed the horizon on the face of the ocean, when he established the skies above, when he securely fixed the fountains of the deep, when he set the boundaries for the sea, so the waters never transgress his command, when he laid out the earth's foundations, then I was the craftsman beside him. I was his daily delight, always rejoicing before him, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Here you have wisdom, which is the mediator, right? The God is creating through wisdom, right? Which we understand is, is Messiah Yeshua in the new covenant. But also we see there's distinctions here, right? He's setting the boundaries. He's curbing the, the waters of chaos. He's not getting rid of the waters. He's saying, you can only come up to here. And after that, it's going to be land. In the creation story, God uses wisdom with a capital W to create boundaries limits on the elements, holding back the waters of chaos to create unique identities of land and sea. In creation, the seventh day, the Shabbat, is what? Holy. So there's a boundary between Shabbat and the rest of the week. So Shabbat is unique. Shabbat is special. Shabbat is better than the other days. Uh, I don't know about that. Looked at from one angle, Shabbat is full of holiness, uniqueness, and specialness. But looked at from another angle, you need the rest of the days too, right? Because if every day was Shabbat, what would happen? You wouldn't get anything done. And if every day was like the six days, what would happen? You'd get burnt out. So they need each other. They're not codependent. They're not fused together with no distinction. But neither are they totally independent, separated from each other and isolated. There's a balance between those two. Rather, they are both distinct and connected. They are interdependent. Bada bing. We're going to come back to that. This is how boundaries work in relationships. We have two needs as humans. One, on the one hand, we need to be independent entities. We need to define ourselves. We need to be distinct individuals. On the other hand, we need to connect. We need to connect with each other. We need to relate. We need to compromise. We need to be intimate. Boundaries that let some things through is what enables healthy relationships. If your boundaries are too strong, what happens? Then you're building walls. You're isolating. If your boundaries are too weak, what happens? You fuse together. You become codependent. Someone with strong boundaries, they don't care what anybody thinks. They're not out to please anybody. They have a strong sense of who they are, who God made them to be. They're comfortable saying no. The 40th uh, anniversary of Saturday Night Live on live TV, the Jewish sage, Jerry Seinfeld, was dialoguing with various people in the audience, notably with his good friend, Larry David, with whom he partnered to create the sitcom, also called Seinfeld. At the end of the conversation, he said, Larry, are you, are you going to the after party? And Larry said, no, well, why would I do that? Just 
just a flat out no, right? He wasn't like, oh, you know, we'll see, or, you know, no, I don't want to do that, right? In front of God and country, <laughs> he was saying this. Uh, I have a good friend, uh, this was in my bachelor days, uh, we were, um, we went to the grocery store together, and uh, he also have, has a good, strong sense of boundaries, and uh, he's, he met someone that he knew, and the guy said, oh, well, uh, I'll see you tomorrow, because there was like some church group thing that they were doing, and my friend just went, no. Like, that was it. <laughs> you know, most of us would be like, well, you know, um, thank you for the invitation, but, you know, I'll have to check my calendar or something more. No. That's all he said. Right? And uh, so... This is, a, this is a strong sense of boundaries, right? Being able to say no. Um, but on the other side, uh, you know, the, the people that are softer, right? <laughs> that say, we'll see, or thank you for the invitation, or something like that. It, it requires empathy, right? It requires relating to the other person, right? But sometimes, if it's too soft, right? Then that leads to what? People-pleasing, right? You just... You just fuse to that person. Whatever they say, oh, are you going to see me? Am I going to see you tomorrow? Uh, yes, right? Like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be there. You're just saying yes to everything, right? So someone with weaker boundaries might not want to express themselves, or they might be afraid of rejection, or they just go along with something that is hurtful, because it's hard. It's hard for us to, 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 to be intimate with people and relate to them if there's a disagreement or if there's something we need to work out. As a parent or teacher, if our boundaries are too strong, children become frustrated and stunted. But, and we're, we're too authoritative and too rigid. But if our boundaries are too weak, what happens? They don't learn discipline. They don't, they're not safe. Then we're too friendly and we're too familiar to be an authority. Right? And they tell you, uh, when you start teaching, at the beginning of the year, you have to be a little bit more strict. Right? Because it's easier to, to relax a little bit as the year goes on than to try to rein them in after you've given them, you know, freedom. <laughs> so, you know, there's a tension to it, right? But, uh, but you can't be all authoritative. The first boundary applied by God to the humans was what? What, what was the boundary he gave us? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why would he say that? Well, we see God as a good parent and a good teacher. So how do we understand this boundary? If we're not supposed to eat from the tree, how are we supposed to learn right from wrong? Have you ever thought about that? How are we supposed to know what was good and what was evil? Did God want us to understand that? Or did he want us to remain ignorant for all eternity? Well, that's not the God that I worship, right? I believe, and I think the scripture backs this up. I believe he wanted us to understand good and evil. But how? How do you think he was going to do that? I think he wanted to spend time with us. And I think he wanted to teach us. He wanted to teach us these things from his perspective. That's what he was thinking. Don't take the fruit. Let me show you what is good and what is not good for you. Because I established that, right? I established the heavens, and I said it was good. I established the light, Kitov. It was good, right? We get our moral compass, right? What is good 
from him. I think he would have taught us. It's so sad, right? He would have taught us because he knows what is good and evil, and he gets to define that, right? We get our sense of what is good from God. By eating the fruit, what are we saying? We're saying we want the authority. We want to define good and evil. We don't want to learn from him. We want to say, right? So the boundary to not eat the fruit, I think, was about God relating to us as our teacher, our father, and our king. Once we made that choice, what happened? There was a boundary on Eden. What was it guarded by? It was guarded by two heavenly creatures called cherubim, sometimes translated cherubs. There were two winged creatures who stood at the boundary to Eden to guard the humans from going back in. So was this a semi-permeable boundary? I think so. I don't think it was permanent. Why do I say that? The next time that the word cherubim appears, the next time you see the word cherub in the Hebrew Bible is when? The figures that Israel is supposed to carve on the Ark of the Covenant. Can you picture that? You have the, the, the mercy seat, right? It's called sometimes the, the kaparot, right? And it's, it's a, 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 a wood, it's a box of gold. Inside are the Ten Commandments, right? The covenant. And it's the seat of the throne of God when he meets with Israel in the tent, in the tabernacle, in the holy of holies, in the holiest place. Can you picture that? That's the next time we see the words cherub, cherubim, and it's two. What are they doing there? They're the boundary. But they're also the mediator because they are marking the way back into God's holy presence. We were kicked out of Eden, and now we get to go back into Eden through the cherubs to be with God in the tent of meeting. They stand in between the tension, dun dun dun, of Israel's mistakes and failures and the holy, pure, bright presence of God. And they enable Israel, at least partially, to come back. To come back. And now we've come to this week's Parsha. We've come out of Egypt. We've come through the Red Sea. Now we're at the foot of Mount Sinai, the cosmic holy mountain where we're going to meet with God, right? Here are some excerpts from Exodus 19. We read some of this earlier, and I'd like all of us to read aloud the parts that are in bold, because um, those are the words of Hashem. But there's other, the other verses are there for context, if you want to take a look at that. So this is what's going on. We read this earlier. Next slide, please. All right, and let's read this let's read this together, the part in bold, because this is what God is saying. Say this to the house of Jacob, and tell Bene Yisrael, 
You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you listen closely to my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own treasure from among all people, for the earth is mine. So as for you, you will be to me a kingdom of Kohanim and a holy nation. These are the words which you are to speak to B'nai Israel. So this is the tension of Israel being unique, being a holy nation, right? We see that again. All right. And then uh, we have some more context and uh, the Lord speaks again. Let's read this together if you're able. I am about to come to you in a thick cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. Right. And then Adonai says this. <clears throat> together, please. Go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothing. Be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Adonai will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You are to set boundaries for the people all around, saying, be very careful not to go up onto the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. Not a hand is to touch it, but he will surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it is an animal or a man, it will not live. When the shofar sounds, they may come up to the mountain. Right, And then you have some more descriptions of the boundaries and the things, but that's the basic idea. And if you want to look at uh, Exodus 19 later today, you feel free to, but we're going to move forward. So what's going on here? The people are meeting with God in some ways. And so there are boundaries. There's boundaries on their behavior, right? And literal boundaries on how far they can go. All of Israel is not to cross the foot of the mountain. And notice also that God gives Israel the, um, the mandate to enforce those boundaries, right? He's, he's delegating that authority to, to, uh, Moses and Israel. Um, uh, so why are they not to cross the foot of the mountain? Why can't they go up, right? Because of the holiness of the presence of God, right? It's like walking into the sun. You, you, you don't do that, right? Not only that, but there are boundaries on their behavior. What do they have to do? They have to refrain from being with their wives, it says in the text. They have to wash themselves. We saw that, right? And uh, even, even to be just at the foot of the mountain, they have to, there's certain things that they have to do. All right? Notice, however, that for the priests and for Moses, there's different boundaries, aren't there? right? Because they are the mediators, right? So they are in between. In the JPS commentary on Exodus, I found this excellent connection between Mount Sinai and something else, the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle that we just talked about with the cherubim, with the cherubs and the throne of God and the Holy of Holies, right? That's what Mount Sinai is, in a sense. This connection was made by Ramban, who was a medieval Jewish scholar, and the JPS commentary builds on that. So this is what it says, quote, Mount Sinai assumes the character of a sanctuary for the duration of the theophany. That's the appearance of God. A close similarity to the wilderness tabernacle is suggested by several shared characteristics. Both Sinai and the tabernacle evidence a tripartite division. There's three parts. 
The summit corresponds to the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. The second part, partway up the mountain, is the equivalent of the tabernacle's outer portion, or the holy place, right? You have the holy of holies and the holy place. And then the third zone at the foot of the mountain is analogous to the outer court, right? All Israel could go to the outer court, right? And uh, it's the mountain is set up the same exact way. The third zone, yeah, I said that. As with the tabernacle, the three distinct zones of Sinai feature three gradations of holiness in descending order as you go down. Just as Moses alone, he's the only one who goes up to the peak of the mountain, so only one goes into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, right? The high priest. Just as the holy place is the exclusive preserve of the priesthood in, in the tabernacle, so only the priests and elders are allowed to ascend to a specific point on the mountain. The confinement of the laity, right, the regular folks, to the outer court of the tabernacle, well, the, where the altar of burnt offering was located, evokes parallel with Sinai in the restriction of the laity to the foot of the mountain where the altar was built. There was an altar down there as well. The graduated restrictions on access, touch, and sight are the counterparts of the repeated regulations about the unlawful invasion of sacred domain in the same three ways, right? Because God is holy. God is said to descend upon the mountain as upon the tabernacle. This is the same thing that happens in the tabernacle, right? The presence of God descends on it. He communicates with Moses on the summit, just like he does in the Holy of Holies, right? He says, I will speak to you from between the cherubim. I will speak to you from that throne. Uh, finally, the vivid descriptions of smoke, dense cloud, and fire that issued and enveloped Sinai are paralleled by the cloud and fire that become associated with the tabernacle, right? That's what happens uh, at the end of the book of Exodus, right? That the glory of God fills the tabernacle, just like Mount Sinai. Also, oh, unquote, all right? Also, we notice that Moses is the mediator, right? He's the one that marks the boundary between God on the top of the mountain and the people below. And what does he do? He has a hand on both of them, and he brings them together. He links them together. As Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles, how do we balance between these two tensions? Dun, dun, dun! How do we do it? By clinging to our mediator, Yeshua the Messiah. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, verses 4 through 6, He desires all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, a human, Messiah Yeshua, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at the proper time. Yeshua is the mediator, and he straddles the line between these tensions. All the tensions in, 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 in the scriptures, he brings together, he holds together, just like Moses, but in a fuller way, right? He is the king of the Jews, as well as the king of the nations. He's the king over all creation. Scripture says all things are under his feet. Yeshua mediates a relationship between us and God. He reconciles us, he brings us back to God, and he reconciles us back to each other, Jew and Gentile, male and female, so that we can be a unity of interdependence. Yeshua draws us near to Hashem. He draws us near to God, even though 
God is full of glory, and God is full of brilliance and holiness. Yeshua the Messiah enables us to be intimate with God, even though God is full of glory and God is our King. So let us cling to him regularly, cling to Yeshua daily. And it means we also might have to adjust any imbalance, right? A lot of times there's an imbalance between these two things. So we allow God to, to correct that so we can make a maneuver, so we can have healthy boundaries, right? And also, so we can be mediators, right? We're to be like Yeshua in some ways, and I think this is one of the ways. We mediate God's kingship and fatherhood. We bring them together. We represent the love of God and reverence for God. Why? So that the world may know the fullness of both his majesty and his intimate care and love for us. Amen? All right. Avinu Malkenu, our father and our king, we thank you for the mediator that we have in Yeshua the Messiah. We thank you for the pictures that you've given us of, of mediation in the, the cherubs and through Moses. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the pictures that you've given us of your holiness and the different levels of that in Sinai. And we thank you, Lord, that you have created us to have healthy boundaries, to be independent and to not be codependent on others and not to be people pleasers, but at the same time to, uh, to have healthy boundaries, Lord, and to be relational and to be loving and compassionate. Um, so help us, Lord, to, to bridge that, that gap and to be mediators as well and help us to cling to you, O Lord, for you are uh, the mediator. You are the one that reconciles us back to God. And we thank you, Lord Yeshua. And in his name we pray. Amen.